Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is the first day of April. It is the Thursday before Easter. I'm Tom Tilley. And Jan Fran, like a lot of people on the east coast of Australia, you're heading into Easter a bit nervous. Yeah, I've got at least one butt cheek clenched. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's every time cases of coronavirus start popping up, I do get a little bit nervous because I've been travelling a fair bit recently and I've been loving it. (laughs) Like, I'm so... Popping down to Melbourne. I'm so into getting on planes. I'm so into airports these days. I get there an hour early just to hang out because I haven't done it in ages. So... Yeah, the nerves are slowly kicking in. I'm just hoping I will be able to travel this weekend. Yeah, we'll find out more about those restrictions and the sad news about Blues Fest in just a moment. Um, we're also going to speak to one of our briefing listeners today. Um, one of your fellow listeners is actually going to um, come on the show. Uh, she's got a really good idea for a story uh, we're going to cover as our briefing topic today. She's fired up about the way farmers are portrayed in the climate change debate. There's sort of the poor farmer image that gets put out there, but... In fact, it's a really vibrant industry with lots of passionate people, scientists and farmers who are who are working all the time on this. So that's Mel. Um, we'll hear more of her in a moment as we brief you on the role farmers will play in the move towards net zero emissions. First, let's get into the news of the day, Jan. All right, starting in Queensland and Brisbane, residents are set to find out if the city's lockdown will be extended beyond this afternoon and into Easter. Fingers crossed or we'll be looking good for Easter. But it depends on the testing rates again. So if we see very good testing rates across Queensland and we don't see any unlinked community transmission, the signs for Easter are looking positive. So that's the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk sounding hopeful yesterday after she announced those two new cases of community transmission. Both were linked to the patient at the centre of the existing cluster at Brisbane Hospital. Yes, and it is a downward trajectory from the eight new community cases recorded the day before, but I think the damage here is still widespread. Restrictions have spread to northern New South Wales with Byron Bay's Blues Fest cancelled. Yeah, so sad. I know, and it's for the second year in a row as well. And I think it's, look, it's particularly painful because it was supposed to be one of the first major music festivals that was going to resume after 2020. And it was cancelled by New South Wales authorities at the very last minute. I think people were turning up and they had to be turned away. So, yeah, that is a massive bummer. Yeah, around 16,000 people were expected to go over this multi-day festival. And I remember last year um, we had Peter Noble, the boss of Blues Fest, on the briefing. And he was trying to be really brave and valiant about moving ahead Mm. despite all the really complex restrictions that are involved in putting on a festival in this era. Um, He was working so hard, being really positive, and to see this happen at the last minute is really sad. Yeah, there's there's been new restrictions that were introduced in several local council areas in the north of the state yesterday. This was after a local man caught COVID. So he's a man in his 20s. He visited the same hotel that was attended by a Brisbane Hens Party, um, which has been dubbed a super spreader event. And the federal government has missed its vaccine uh, target by a long shot. Yeah, they originally promised 4 million doses by, well, the deadline was yesterday, uh, and only 600,000 doses have been given out. So they're 15% of the way towards their target. Not a good percentage. So they've missed the target by 85%. Mm, and they, they're blaming the state governments for it as well. So they gave data to News Corp that said that key states had only administered 
around half of the vaccines that the federal government had given them. We're going to help the states, but they've got to admit they've got a problem because they've done three-fifths of bugger all. Uh, and they are holding this nation back. So that's the federal emergency management minister, David Littleproud, putting the boots in. Yeah. Um, not surprisingly, uh, that got a pretty strong reaction from the states. Uh, here's the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard. I really find this very offensive. I mean, this is the first time you'll find that I've said anything negative publicly in 15 months, but I'm angry. Yeah, he basically accused the federal government of planting the story and he said that supply of vaccines from the government had been inconsistent. Here's the Labor Deputy Premier, Stephen Miles. An orchestrated attack by Morrison government ministers against the states and territories, and it really is quite outrageous. Yeah, it is interesting to note, Brad Hazard, Liberal, Stephen Miles, Labor, they both seem to feel the same way about the federal government. Um, Greg Hunt, who is the federal health minister, was out yesterday trying to smooth things over. Um, I don't know if it worked. He said that he did, in fact, have confidence in the states, but damage has been done, I think. Yeah, so the argument from the states was that those numbers included tens of thousands of doses that had been delivered in the last 24 hours without notice. Um, So that made the percentage of um, vaccines administered look worse than it really was. And Australia will produce its own guided missiles. The PM, Scott Morrison, announced a new $1 billion plan to establish a new weapons facility with a global arms manufacturer. Um, Scott Morrison says it'll help make Australia more self-reliant in its defence capabilities. Yeah, it's part of a massive $270 billion spend on defence projects over the next 10 years. Um, The federal government announced late last year that uh, it'll partner with the United States to develop air-launched hypersonic cruise missiles. Yeah, we're yet to be told where the facility will be. Apparently South Australia, though, is a front-runner to host it. There you go. Good for them. And back to New South Wales, the Premier there, Gladys Berejiklian, says that she is happy to see Nationals MP Michael Johnson resign from Parliament, even though it means that she has lost her majority in Parliament. I'm very relieved. That is a good outcome. So Mr Johnson was removed from the Coalition Party Room last week after it came out that he'd been accused of raping a sex worker. Uh, And then the ABC revealed the lewd text he'd been sending to the sex worker from inside Parliament even during question time, and they were really out there. Yeah, we should say that he denies the allegations that he raped a sex worker. Um, The New South Wales government will have to win a by-election, basically, in Mr Johnson's seat to regain their majority in Parliament. That's the seat of the Upper Hunter. It was once a safe seat. It's becoming a little bit more marginal recently with uh, minor parties increasing in popularity there. So not going to be as easy um, as perhaps what it initially might have been. Interesting to see the parallel, though, with Scott Morrison's reaction to Andrew Lamming here. So he's the federal MP that's been accused of harassing women online and also taking a photo of a woman bending over without her permission. Now, there have been calls, including from the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, for Lamming to be kicked out of the party and onto the crossbench immediately rather than at the next election. That would have put the federal government into a minority position similar to Berejiklian's. But Scott Morrison's rejected those calls, wants to hang on to his people at least until the next election. Yeah, a very interesting contrast that Berejiklian took a different approach there, the approach many people were calling for, including Malcolm Turnbull, as he said. All right, Jan, good luck for Easter weekend. Hope your travel plans uh, run smoothly and um, Dan Andrews doesn't keep you in Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Although I'd happily stay in Melbourne if you decided to. Let me just put that out there. You love Melbourne. I do. Um, We all love Melbourne. Um, All right, Annika's about to jump in as we talk to a briefing listener.
So a few times over the last month on this podcast, I've been asking you to get in touch via the um, Instagram DMs. You know, basically tell us what you think of the briefing and tell us about any stories you want us to cover. And today, one of those Instagram messages has actually sparked our briefing topic. Melissa Smith wrote to us and said, Hi guys, love your show. I'm a farmer from Queensland. And wondering what's going on with the National Party saying agriculture can't be part of emissions targets when the National Farmers Federation have industry-wide commitment to carbon neutrality by 2050. Uh, She also jumped in with a bit of a jibe about Barnaby Joyce. Um, Why is Barnaby Joyce using analogies uh, about changing your mind on marriage partners as a way to counsel farmers against emissions reduction? (laughs) So we've actually got Mel on the phone. Mel joins us now. Thank you so much for getting in touch, Mel, and for listening to The Briefing. No worries. Um, What made you so passionate to write in about this issue? I just feel that sometimes all the work that's been done in ag around climate isn't known by the by the general public. And I think it's pretty amazing that the National Farmers Federation are taking the lead by making these um, commitments and are, in fact, asking for the federal government to commit to an economy-wide net zero emission by 2050 as well. Mel, do you think sometimes farmers get a bit of a bad rap in this area that perhaps the rest of the population thinks that they don't want to do anything about climate change? I think so. I do, yeah. And I also think there's sort of the poor farmer image that gets put out there. But in fact, it's a really vibrant industry with lots of passionate people, scientists and farmers who are who are working all the time to, on this. You know, there was a workshop this week about climate and emissions reductions in ag. There was a forum. There's, there's ones about farmer-led greenhouse gas mitigation strategies that have got really senior people from the industry and science working hard on this. So let's get into it. In this briefing, we're going to find out what role farmers play in a low-carbon emissions future and what do they have to gain or lose from the push for net zero emissions. Yeah, so a bit of background on what Mel was talking about. Her comments about the National Party come from a debate that happened last month. Basically, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, gave a press club address where he moved the government closer to committing Australia to a 2050 net zero emissions target, which is what most other developed nations already have. But then some senior Nationals MPs came out suggesting that agriculture should be exempt from the target because it would hurt farmers. Here's Michael McCormack. There's no way known that we are going to whack regional Australia, hurt regional Australia uh, in any way, shape or form just to get a target for climate in 2050. So that was the Nationals leader, Michael McCormack. Um, Here's the bit where Barnaby Joyce used marriage as a metaphor. I might offer one word of caution for those who are, you know, jumping on board saying they want it, they want it, they want it, you know... You can't say, I'm going to marry a person and then say, I actually want to marry someone else. (laughs) Oh, my God. I think many people would argue, obviously, Mel is making the argument that marriage is not a very convincing metaphor when it's used by Barnaby Joyce, who had such a spectacular and public marriage breakdown. And that position was also out of step with many farmers in Australia. Now, the Australian red meat and livestock industry has already set a 2030 net zero target And the National Farmers Federation, as Mel said, has also committed to net zero by 2050 and are calling for the rest of the economy to join the party. Yeah, so farmers, a lot of them are already heading in this direction. They want the rest of the economy to catch up. So electricity generation is the largest source of emissions in Australia. Um, It accounts for about a third of our carbon output. Agriculture 
uh, accounts for around 14%, so a fair bit less, but still very substantial. Most of that comes from the methane gas produced by livestock, but the industry's already managed to get that down 50% over the last 20 years. So let's find out how the industry plans to bring it down even further. Adam Coffey and his wife run a cattle farm near Gladstone in central Queensland. He's speaking to us from his veranda as he watches the sunrise. Adam, thanks for joining us. Agriculture is really vulnerable to the effects of climate change. So as a farmer, what impacts are you seeing on the land and how's that affecting your ability to farm? Yeah, look, it's an, it's an ongoing challenge. Um, seasonal variability, I guess, has, has always been there. And certainly, whilst averages haven't changed, particularly rainfall averages, we, we probably see a few more extremes. So we really just try and run our business in a fashion so that we are ready to take advantage of uh, any rainfall that's received and really just try and trying to smooth out the humps and the bumps. So it sounds like you're changing some of your practices on your farm to make it more efficient. Do you think many farmers are following you in that? And is it just a natural sort of survival of the fittest thing to do? Or do you think a lot of farmers maybe need prompting in this area to be more efficient given the changing climate? I'd say it's a little bit of both. You know, certainly by necessity, I guess we change. There's a lot of capacity building in our industry now in regards to managing your farm through climate variability, I suppose you'd call it. So certainly a mix of both, I'd say. So there's been an increased, uh, um, I guess, enthusiasm from our coalition government to uh, embrace the net zero carbon emission target by 2050. Scott Morrison said a month ago that that's ideally where we'd like to get to, although he hasn't committed to that timeline. And um, that sparked a, a comment from the Nationals leader, Michael McCormack, saying that potentially agriculture should be excluded from that net zero target like they've done in New Zealand. Where do you stand in that debate? I refer to the red meat industry because that's what we're involved with. And if you look at the uh, the red meat industry, we initiated a carbon neutral 2030 target back in 2017, which was pretty proactive at the time. We get pretty excited in this space because we, we actually believe that our beef cattle have uh, the ability to sequester more carbon than, than they emit uh, through good grass management and basically ensuring that we continue to improve our soil health but yeah, we, there's a really good story to tell in that in that right. sense. So if I can just clarify what you're saying, you're saying that the red meat industry, which is a, contributes essentially three quarters of the emissions in the agricultural sector, has already done a lot to reduce their emissions and, and you want to be part of this net zero target. In fact, you already set one some time ago and that you have actually more to gain from doing that than it will cost you as farmers. Oh, 100%, Tom. I mean, it's always struck me as a funny argument that uh, farmers would be against any uh, improvement to the environment they operate in or improvement to the asset, their, their environmental asset, their land asset. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're, we're the ones that have got the most to lose in any of this. But uh, on the flip side, the, the opportunity that's out there is significant. Now, agriculture is responsible for about 14% of greenhouse gas emissions, which is a lot lower than, say, the energy sector, but still a significant amount. A lot of that is actually from cattle production. So, Short of us eating less red meat, what other ways can you do it? You touched on it there, but is it about, you know, planting trees to offset it? How do we transport this meat into our cities? What sort of, I guess, pull and push things can we do to try and bring those emissions down in this sector? 
if we look at uh, carbon, well, emissions, greenhouse gas emissions in a in a linear fashion, then basically you look at a cow, you look at what she uh, burps, and you measure that against the likes of a fossil fuel emission, and uh, you, you, it's a pretty simple equation. I'm not the expert on this, but uh, the way I understand it is that you know methane emissions, a cow emits methane. It's uh, put into the atmosphere, which is then converted to carbon dioxide. Uh, this is then sequestered by plants, uh, which can then be basically the oxygen is is freed and the carbon goes back into the soil. Now, if we, if you think of grass like a tree, uh, it's no different. While a tree is growing, it sequesters a lot of carbon in its timber. Well, grass is the same. And while while grass is active and growing, we can uh, we can sequester a lot of carbon into the plant and into the soil. The crux of it is having a living root in the year or year round. So if you've got a living plant, that's basically converting carbon into the soil. Some of that sounds quite expensive, especially the technology behind it. Who should pay for that? As a producer, we're more than willing to fit foot the bill on something that we see as uh, it's, it's not just production gain, it's environmental gain. And that's the beauty of this type of uh, potential sequestration is it's a win-win. I also think that if the consumer wants to see these outcomes, I mean, I, I believe that most people are very comfortable, and again, I'm talking about beef specifically here, but uh, beef, red meat, people love the product and they just want to be comfortable uh, that they're eating it and that it's environmentally sustainable, I guess. So, you know, whether the mechanism is through through government or the private sector, then, you know, there's, it's evident that there is appetite for this type of investment. It's, it's happening now. If, you know, some of those big countries that we're importing a lot of our beef suddenly had tariffs put on it because of our climate policies and potentially farmers being exempt, that's got to be a bad outcome for, for you guys who are exporting beef. Yeah, and look, we are a big exporter. Um, I think that uh, regardless of what the federal government does at this stage, as I said, our industry is committed to a, a 2030 net carbon neutral position. So I think that that's got a long way to play out yet uh, and, and a lot of positive outcomes. During COVID, we really, I guess, got to focus on how important food security is. So how do we encourage more farmers to be like you? <laughs> I don't know if you you want that, but uh, <laughs> we just do what we do and it works for us and and I think it's a good way of managing land. We we operate in a, a, a Great Barrier Reef catchment, so there's certainly a big focus on that. Uh, and I know a lot of federal and state funding is going into programs to uh, reduce erosion, improve water runoff, and a lot of these other environmental and ecological outcomes. So uh, it's a pretty hot space at the moment. That was cattle farmer Adam Coffey, and interesting to hear, Annika, about the way some of those farmers are changing their practices. Um, fostering more um, natural grass crops and moving their cattle around differently, which is reducing emissions and also increasing efficiency. Yeah, it seems a little bit like Darwinism to me, some sort of survival of the fittest. But, you know, we need, if COVID's made us say anything, it's that we need good food security here in Australia. So it seems almost inevitable that farmers will adopt this. But what we need to see is, I guess, more industry support and also more government support so they can do this. And with your Canberra hat on, what what do you make of the way the Nationals are handling this issue given they're out of step with the National Farmers Federation? Look, they might be out of step with the National Farmers Federation, but they still derive most of their votes from country people. And they wouldn't be doing this unless they thought that there still was a lot of fear in the community about what this will do to regional communities who have to, I guess, rein in some of their emissions. So... Ultimately, they do represent farmers and they are the farming party, but they also are the national party, which is the party of regional Australia. 
And increasingly, a lot of people out there rely on other sectors for their work, such as mining, of course. And this has been a great debate in Canberra about where the National Party actually fit and who they represent. All right, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have an amazing Easter. Um, If you're keen to listen to the briefing tomorrow, we've got a really interesting episode about Hillsong. Listener.